Hello there and welcome to episode 60 of Right Where You're Sitting Now, the podcast for the site sittingnow.co.uk. Joining me in the hot seat once again this week is Mark Satir, that's Mark with a C. Uh, welcome Mark and uh, how do I find you this week? Full of anticipation. <laughs> well, and the, the reason for that is we are interviewing the wonderful, the legendary Tobias Churton. Um, author of, of many now, <laughs> Alistair Crowley mm. books. I mm. think this is his fifth. Mm. Um, his latest book is Alistair Crowley in England, The Return of the Great Beast, but he's mm. written mm. Alistair Crowley in India, Alistair Crowley in Berlin, uh, Alistair Crowley in America, as well as a more uh, generalised biography of the man. But on top of that, I mean, Tobias Chetton is a fairly prolific author, wouldn't you say, Mark? Oh, absolutely. And and one of great lucidity. And um, he's, he's capable of... Uh, Bringing himself to um, return, revisit uh, sort of subjects, so that not just this subject, but other subjects uh, in the in the canon, the sort of esoteric canon, and um, and bringing a, a new light, a new sort of insight, and um, a very kind of penetrating um, examination. He sort of he's excellent at sort of a, it was almost like a forensic sort of approach of sort of opening things up and then sort of methodically sort of working through them. Mm which um, actually makes his writing uh, very relative, very deep, and um, and, and brings a, a great thoughtfulness to it. Mm. Yeah, so before we go into that interview, I, d I always forget, and then I remember just now, um, do check us out on social media. It's starting to pick up a bit now, which is, which is um, you know, uh, good to see. So it's always sitting now. So one word, sitting now. If you look us up on Instagram, I think Facebook. Um, no, Facebook, it's right where you're sitting now. YouTube, it's definitely sitting now. But do join us and, you know, give us suggestions or, you know, things you don't like. You might, Maybe you find Mark abhorrent and you want to get rid of well, him. Well, uh, really, I mean, <laughs> I can't be expected to work under these conditions. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, it's... I mean, I'm the, I, everyone, know, you know, you should be on your hands and knees, <laughs> Ken, and saying, I'm thanking God that you've got the, the greatest co-host in the whole of podcast history next to you. So, you know, it's just, you know, that's just a simple fact. It's yeah. just, let, let's just, let, let's just leave it at that. <laughs> we don't have to, we don't have to go over it all the time, but you know, we, we know well, the, the people in podcast, lad, they listen to this. They know this. <laughs> okay, well, uh, it's a fact of nature. It's like it's like <laughs> gravity or something like that. It's just like a, it's just a thing. Okay, well, okay, I'll leave that subject. That's obviously I've touched a nerve. Anyway, um, let's uh, let's go into um, what I hope to be a fantastic interview with Mr. Tobias Churton. Tobias Churton, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Um, could you tell us how did you kind of become interested in the subject of uh, the esoteric and occultism in general? A certain dissatisfaction growing up in the 1970s uh, in my teenage years um, with conventional religion and a, a, an inner sense of poetic transcendence. Uh, led me to be sympathetic to things that seem magical or extraordinary. And also, um, having my teen years in the 70s, there was co a continual barrage of everything from UFOs to uh, to spoon bending to um, the chariots of the gods. There was all this stuff 
I mean, I thought a lot of it was rubbish, but at the same time, a certain amount of it captured my imagination, possibly from being too addicted to Tintin books. Um, but re really, it's, it, was, it, it was the religious component of the magical tradition that attracted me. And when I went to Oxford to study theology with the idea of becoming a priest, um, I found that I got more inner reward from reading about magic than I did from reading the epistles of St. Paul, which seemed to me to be relatively prosaic. And um, while inspiring at certain levels, it seemed to me the focus of religion on moral righteousness was adequate, but only a beginning. That was the feeling I, I had. And I was more interested in the, all this idea of the mind as a mystery, and uh, above all, that the imagination is a key component of human reality, and that it's suppressed in, in, a, in a strange way. The other thing was that I was profoundly suspicious of governing bodies. That wasn't difficult growing up in Britain in the 70s, because we were surrounded by demagogues of, of incredible lunacy in the trades union movement, and in all the political parties that I could see were advocating the most extraordinary nonsense about what human life should be about and how to please the ordinary person. I felt very close to people and had an immense amount of love for them. And I felt they were being shortchanged either with materialistic promises of more of this, more of that, uh, a kind of continual social bribe to conform, or the, the revolutionary type who seemed to think that we're all just grist to the mill of some sort of abstract revolution to produce an eventual uh, utopia to cut to the shape of their infantile or adolescent minds. And we're still very much in that position in England. So I wanted to transcend that. I also wanted to transcend time because I saw that the, the agony of man is, is being compressed into a short, uh, very short existence, never really waking up in the whole time, a bit like finding you're in a swimming pool, but you're sinking all the time. And you know that above the waves is this golden sun, but you can't reach it. It's just a, a, a sort of fading and glittering image. And if you lived in the water, you would never be sure if it was real. So an urge for transcendence of time, of myself, of, of the political uh, horror of England in the 70s, um, and, and of course, subsequently. Yeah, all of that uh, leads one to the to the uh, to a realization that there's more to it than meets the eye as john lennon was always reminding us uh, you remember his lovely phrase reality leaves a lot to the imagination yeah so i i was interested in poetry i was interested in mountaineering i was interested in going further all of those things made certain aspects of the magical and esoteric tradition um a bit of a a harbor a haven mm. for my ship so how was that received at, um, at your university? Was it... Uh... Horror. Yeah. <laughs> Horror, despair, get him out, you know. They thought that um, the chaplain at Brasenose College uh, really made efforts to uh, see me out, especially when he heard that I was interested in Alistair Crowley, who clearly was the devil incarnate. And then he'd taken me in on the basis that I would turn out to be a kind of combination of evangelical Catholic priest uh, advocating the values entirely of the Oxford movement. And um, 
I was just a growing mind. I wanted to do other things. I was interested in, in uh, the, the, this challenge that magic presents and has always presented to authoritarian um, structures, whether it's science or religion. I, have, I, I had a distinct sense and confidence when I was growing up that there wasn't anything I couldn't master if I wanted to. So I was never impressed terribly by um, the kind of education that the state was providing. Um, so there, yeah, transcendence is the theme of my whole life. And I want people to transcend. And were, yeah. were you uh, in any way a practitioner of any of the um, um, magical practices or was it? Uh... I, think, I think Crowley would say that every artist is a magician. Mm -hmm. True, true. But I mean, did you? But did you... If, uh, do you mean I draw circles on the floor? Mm -hmm. No, but I draw circles around aspects of my work and I certainly evoke and invoke powers of the mind. You sort of began an interest in Crowley how did that kind of come about was that because of you were a, um, a fan of poetry and mountaineering or was it yeah well I mean that was part of, I tell you what it was I, I I think in my first term I went to a meeting of the Oxford Mountaineering Society and it, in the course of the meeting somebody who I was speaking to I'd just come back from the Alps I've been climbing around Chamonix and over into Switzerland over the, the that whole range of the Aiguille Rouge and uh, over to Cormayer and uh, nothing, nothing spectacular. I wasn't a budding Chris Bonington, but I, I was, I was keen, to, keen to climb. And um, I went to this meeting, and somebody started talking about this guy, Alistair Crowley, who had remarkable uh, successes. I mean, we know that he climbed the Eiger single-handed in about 1895, 96, and um, alone as ever. Uh, the wanderer of the waste, and it was a, he was a remarkable climber. But when what intrigued me was somebody said, a he was a big hero of Chris Bonington, and that he was a poet, and that there was and a magician. Oh, climbing, poetry, magician. You've you've covered body, soul, and spirit. You know, well that was something. And I must have mentioned him to to my great and closest friend George Simey, who we we sort of powled up in the in first term. And he, he like me was a bit of a reprobate. Um, and uh, came from the Midlands also. He was from Wolverhampton. I was from Sutton Coldfield. So we knew we had a lot in common just in that. And we were both sort of uh, dissatisfied with conventional um, thinking and lifestyles. And uh, he had had the confessions of Alistair Crowley from the Wolverhampton Public Library. I'm amazed they let it out because in Sutton they didn't let Crowley's books out of the library. And he lent it to me after he finished um, with it. I don't know if he read the whole thing. I read it that Christmas, uh, 78, and I just loved it. I loved his humour, his arrogance, and but the non-stop confidence that he had in his own mystical experience. And a lot of it I didn't understand because it's all that Masonic, quasi-Masonic, Golden Dawn, these extraordinary titles that they were giving each other, that, that was all a bit foreign and, 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 and remote. But what came through was a very clear idea of the value of the mystical and the magical combined, as well as the general challenge and his penetrating um, forensic insight into human hypocrisy and suppression, repression. I felt that very strongly grow. I'd done seven years at a 
state school called Comprehensive. The headmaster was a bit more interesting than Shirley Williams, and he interpreted Comprehensive in his own sweet way. Uh, so there was, it was quite a creative school. But at the same time, we were getting the diet that um, the Butler Education Act thought we should get. And there was a sort of a, a general underlying attack on the individual, i.e. conformity level down. Um, w there was a sort of aspect all the time that if you shone as an individual too much, you had to be slightly repressed, otherwise the other people would suffer. So they certainly weren't interested in genius. <laughs> you know, they weren't trying to cultivate genius. Uh, they were very happy to, if they had, the, you know, the, like today, if they get an Ofsted report, they really think it's, a, a, you know, tremendous. They bandy words like excellence around, uh, like like pepper and salt. Um, everything's excellent if they decide it is. You know, I'm talking about the structures. And people are persuaded very early. Now, I was very lucky because my father was, was a real independent mind uh, with enormous experience of a whole range of social uh, situations and was also working in a factory. So I was seeing society from the bottom up anyway. And he used to say to me, Toby, it's not what you do at school that bothers me, it's what you're doing at home. He didn't just mean how I behaved. What he meant was, he, he thought, he said, the education you get outside is all right, but that won't make the difference. You've got to go further. So he encouraged, he bought, he bought me a lot of, oh God, I, he wouldn't, he wouldn't, he wouldn't read anything published after 1900, and I was pretty much the same. So I started to build up a library about the age of. I wrote the first history of the world. I wrote when I was 11 on on a typewriter. Teachers at school were aghast and jealous, and you know, some liked it, some thought that bloody Churton, you know, there was all that going on. So yeah, I, it all comes out of a struggle with a system, and it was the English system uh, of that period. Now, I could imagine somebody saying at the time, you know, well, he should be bloody grateful. You know, if it had been 19th century, he'd have been probably straight into a coal mine or something. And uh, I always had that sort of feeling when you listen to Neil Kinnock, if you remember those far off days, the 80s, when the Labour Party were talking about education, education, education. The only way to get out of the pit, you see, is to get educated. I mean, you feel that when you read Richard Burton's fabulous diaries. So while education is a liberation, and I understand that it's a, it's a step forward from non-education, uh, the content of it is strictly governed. And it was great to go to Oxford and find out who was governing it. <laughs> 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 yeah. And realise, of course, that um, these types were, were really nabobs of the mind who control uh, enormous... Uh, control enormous. Look, look, look at who, our, our previous prime ministers. What have we got? Boris Johnson, I think, was Balliol. Um, uh, uh, Tony Blair was it Maudlin, if I remember right. John Major, God knows how he got in. Uh, he wasn't an Oxford type. But he, I don't know what type he was. And Margaret Thatcher of Somerville. So, you know, it, it, to some people, that means it's like an establishment easy road. But to me, the whole thing is just yet another mental uh, formula which is imposed on young people to make them conform. Mm -hmm. You're bound to get to the question, why, why do I like Crowley? Because Crowley wasn't, like me, an anti-conformist. Because mm -hmm. his devotion to truth, scientific and experiential, was mm -hmm. paramount. 
and also recognizing those you know uh, mind forged manacles uh, yes. the, uh, the some deep in the and in Crowley's words something instinctive there's something in his words that you instinctively well people instinctively I think yeah I often... think he felt a connection with with Blake um in so, Blake is clearer on some areas that that uh, Crowley was obscure on uh, but it, you know it's all part of the tradition mm. I think you've got to also as well with Crowley you've got to put in the work you know you have to work hard he, he doesn't make it easy for you and you've got to work hard with his with his writings and, well he's uh, a scholar I think you've yeah. got to see that that he was a Cambridge scholar even though he was foolish enough not to take his finals mm. I, I say foolish in insofar as um the establishment would always always had that in their back pocket to hold against him. Well, you didn't get a degree, and that's why you didn't find. That's why you weren't able to earn a living when you ran out of your inheritance. You know, you weren't quite close enough. He had, of course, far more ability than the, than any PhD that I've ever met, and and considerably more knowledge and experience. But those little things count, um, uh, unfortunately. And he he was he once he'd got his his inheritance, uh, which was oh so within a year of his of his what would have been his graduation. Um, I think it went to his head a bit. He mm -hmm. thought, now I can live like an aristocrat. Yeah, and uh, and, and he he wasn't uh, tutored as he says himself the, in the sort of day to day having to pay for money. He he never really had a he had a slippery grasp on the on the concept of money. He wasn't something with money, as I was. Because you see, Crowley never really wanted money. He didn't. No. He he needed it, and he knew he did. And he could, came up with one project after another to try and make money. Uh, he needed it for the practical things, but he didn't. He wasn't in love with money. You know, he'd much rather wake up in the you know the Algerian desert and get the richness of seeing a sunrise. That was his wealth that he could not only could see it, but it inflamed his spirit, and he was driven to poetry this is why certain kinds of women like loved him so much because he, he was a romantic you know and he saw nature as a sacrament and human life only making sense when the human life becomes a sacrament yes yeah, i mean why why do you think um like i mean currently it feels like crowley's more popular than ever at the moment what why, why do you think it is we're kind of still talking about crowley in, in 2022 now i mean he's i've just received the latest issue of the 14 times and there's there he is on the front cover you know he pops up i mean there's there's a whole movement online now this whole new breed of kind of social media thelemites or <laughs> it's uh you know it's it, he seems more popular than ever why why do you feel even though he seems irredeemable in some people's minds why is he still so popular and so in our in our kind of modern optics at the moment well i there is always a there's always a, a certain number of people who are fascinated by um the magical the occult the mystery the mystic he he, he kind of co a lot of that coalesces around his is projected personality and and obviously you know we all know it's cliche to say he got a big lift in the 60s because john lennon and jimmy page and i think a bit later david bowie were 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 inspired to some extent different extents and different ways by him so he, so there's a kind of counterculture cachet with crowley that has paid off in even though the rock era, the great rock era is 
probably gone. Uh, it's it's coming out on reissues, CDs, remixes, and all that sort of stuff. So anyone with a mind who penetrates a bit beyond this surface noise is going to find that Crowley was a, a significant figure in this post-war eruption of countercultural uh, superconsciousness and this desire um, to transcend, again, transcend the structures of the existence we were presented with by the post-war settlement. And, and, and Crowley is a sort of hero of that because the first thing you ever read about him was he didn't give a damn about uh, telling it like it is. So he's a, he's, a, he's a hero. He's also a bit of a martyr. I think the more you read about him, you realise that his life was, at certain points, something of a martyrdom. Um, he suffered poverty. He suffered disgrace, uh, a sort of disgrace. He suffered, certainly suffered persecution, and there's no doubt that his enemies wished he was dead. Um, nobody succeeded in destroying him, That's one, and that's another great thing, is that he was, as he said, per durabo, I will endure. He did endure to the end. I mean, rattled with problems from um, addiction to heroin and, and all the rest of it. Uh, but he got to the end, and he was lucid to the end. And uh, he never, he never, he never sold out. Uh, I think I call the introduction to the the new book, Alistair Crowley in England, that very thing. He never sold out. And we've been encouraged in our culture, certainly to sell out as quickly as possible on every level. You sell out your teen years, you sell out your ideals, you see you all, you know, you sell it all out mm. for this or that, you know, well, success. Especially in this modern age where, you know, um, teenagers and kids are kind of being told to kind of worship entrepreneurs and all, you know, this kind of this strange new um, obsession with business and kind of with... Uh... Well, yeah, if the only food, if the only food in the marketplace is cash, then I, I don't blame any young person for wanting to get the cash right. It doesn't mean that they're not thinking of other things. Uh, but the trouble is, as Jesus said, you know, the cares of the world, if you, if you get devoted to the, the treasures of the world, um, whatever else was in you, the spiritual potential, uh, gets swallowed up in the process. It's, it's, there aren't many people who can sustain a balance between the necessities of life and the capacity that money has to change one's life and a, and a spiritual life, because there is an, unfortunately, there really, for most people, there's an inimical, conf, inimical conflict between, between uh, wealth and the spiritual path, you know, one one of them's got to give. <laughs> That's the thing. Now, I don't. That doesn't mean that somebody with wealth can't uh, operate spiritually at all. Crowley probably proves that. Although he he kind of he sacrifices his wealth in a way for for the spiritual path, and he was very willing to do so. I think he must have thought that at the end of that, there'd be a kind of supernatural redemption where he'd be kept from the actual misery that, that being poor can be but that as you find in the the new book there were times in the 30s when he was living in what for him was slums in the elephant and castle uh, you know with a one-room basement flat with a sixpenny gas meter that he didn't have sixpence for that he was invited to parties where he hadn't the opportunity to clean his his shirt collars or get a decent shirt at all so he, he I, he, he paid a high price for his anti-materialism. Uh, but he did pay the price and he carried on. 
and eventually uh people came round and supported him that's a kind of a that's a kind of a myth with crowley isn't it that he was kind of he died in penniless squalor and uh oh, he was far far from penniless there was hmm. at least Oh, I forget the exact figure. It was at least something like 400 pounds in a suitcase under his bed, which had been sent by his followers in California for the publication of his book, Liber Aleph, um, which he would never have spent on himself. Mm. You know, I think also, he, was quite, he, was, he was comfortable in his, his, his last few years of retirement. And he, he was only retired for really two years, 45 to 47 and he wasn't a sort of retirement. Um, it wasn't a complete retirement. He was also preparing his book, Allah, and he was he was still trying to, you know, his last I think his last diary entry was sending poetry to Patrick Dickinson at the BBC to be to be broadcast. So he didn't he didn't really stop. He was terribly ill with bronchitis at the end, and his normal doctor, uh, Doctor Charnock, um, uh, was away. I think when he needed desperately needed some heroin to give him a lift over the horrible winter of 1947 and it didn't come about and it said he cursed the doctor and the doctor soon died i think that's one of those journalistic stories mm. and i think also uh, another shift which i've i've witnessed myself in my own lifespan is that uh, the sh one of the shifts in um, crowley attitudes towards crowley and i use the word attitude with you know precisely that it's a it's not it's a it's more of a feeling than an actual uh, you know an argument or a series of thoughts is that um in the 90s in uh, there was a whole we've got access now to his work his corpus and um you know and if you were so inclined in the 90s throughout the 90s steadily very good qualities often if you were if you were interested enough to go out and read them you can actually read the man's words yourself and come to your own which come to your own decision about if this makes sense to you or is this a life affirming or, or you know a vision or philosophy of life is is presenting and you get a, you know through his works you get a feel for you know where he's coming from more than anything else so, yeah, yeah also though i think you've also got to say that most people come to crowley through people who write very badly about him and always have i mean probably, probably i mean it was very important in the post-war after his death in 47 that john simons wrote his uh, hy hypercritical inaccurate and twisted biography the great beast however for all its for all its uh, disparagement of crowley as a moral character um, that probably turned more people on to Crowley. Anyway, you could write about Crowley being the wickedest man in the world, and there will be people who will sort of think, oh, well, who's they calling the wickedest man in the world? And when they find that he isn't Ted Bundy and uh, responsible for sort of multiple stranglings or something, um, they, you know, they, they find he was actually devoted very much to the mystical and so forth. Uh, that surprise keeps them interested. I don't know how many people these days would really take a, a deep look at his poetry, which he was he thought was his major thing at one point. At certain points, he wanted to be a poet probably more than anything, recognised as a poet. And, of course, he came... He, his poetry was terribly badly timed because it was influenced by um, Browning and uh, particularly by Swinburne. And those style, that style of poetry by the 20 after the first world war came to be uh, disparaged and he'd really perfected his meter 
and his discipline of poetry. But for all that, you know, um, the, the new generation of T.S. Eliot, Auden fans, his stuff looked old fashioned, no matter how interesting its content. Yeah. I think yeah. And, and the cultural role that poetry, you know, played in people's day to day lives. I mean, people in, back in the day, they, they, you know, poetry would be something which are far more popular as a sort of a medium. And, and now it's, it's rare that most people, you know, can name free poets or actually read. And like you say, exactly like you say, sort of, you know, he was a Victorian. He was born in the Victorian age, although he was completely out of step with it. He, you know, he'd have been an amazing rapper artist because he had, he had a great, <laughs> great facility for for simple rhymes and tre trenchant trenchant perceptions put in simple terms um it would have been uh, terrific to put him in a, a microphone i think he'd have shown um kenya west and all these people uh, how what it was really all, what they could really do with this facility of, of spontaneous rhyming um but he was a rhymester very rarely do you get the poetry of the sort of intensity of a Verlaine or Rambo and this sort of thing? He, for, for him, he said poetry is the geezer of the unconscious. Um, but actually, his poetry is very, very disciplined. Though, I'm always surprised. I was looking at Ola yesterday, the, his last collection, which was poems taken from his whole life, which was a kind of way of revisiting the world. And there's some bloody good stuff there. And I, I don't see why... It shouldn't be taught in universities next to the other moderns. Um, he's not a modernist poet, but he's just a remarkable poet, and I don't think it really matters whether you're modernist or romantic or whatever you are. People studying Blake today, aren't they, with great interest? And he's hardly, he's hardly a, you know, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? You know, he's not writing blank verse, you know. So... But, of course, Blake's allowed to be a romantic because he's 18th century. But if you do it now, I remember submitting some of my poetry to the English literature don at Brazenose. And he said, why, why have you inverted the, the adjectives, you know, vision old, as opposed to the old vision? I said, because it works and that's just the way it comes out. Oh, you can't do that anymore. It's that kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, but, with the... With the with the Ola book, which is a which is a sort of biography in poetry, because he he writes about, you know, all the poems in it have a little sort of caveat at the bottom saying, "I wrote this in blah blah." blah. I wrote this in the birdcage in Brighton, or I wrote this in, yes, you know, yeah. whatever. They've got those, so it's like a little biography, and the 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 ones about death and the approach of death are deeply poignant. I found oh, it deeply poignant um, writings. He's very aware. Is very aware of, um, you know, he's very mindful, as you would imagine, of his own. His, well, of course, yeah, but after, after, yeah, after 1923, it wouldn't have mattered if he'd written like Coleridge. Uh, his, his image was such that um, no one was ever going to take him seriously. And the, the salt was further added in, in 1934 when the constable trial, where he was, his work was execrated before a public jury and declared pornographic and obscene and all the rest of it. Um, so, you know, he, he, it wouldn't really matter what he'd done after that. But the beauty is, and you were, your main question was why people today, is truth will out, quality will out eventually. Yeah, Crowley often gets the last laugh. I think another stumbling block, sort of lingering with the poetry theme for for people approaching Crowley's um, poems, I mean, it's, it's become a lazy cliche 
that he's 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 always playing was terrible. But that's what I think that's become a laser clear. That becomes a stumbling block in itself. But also, Crowley is deeply steeped in the the you know the the Kabbalah and um, and other mystical traditions. And often there are allusions to that. You know, in the hymn to Pan, Devil or God to me to me. You know, it's not just a nice rhyming statement. There's a inner meaning which is lost, which is which is overlooked. And is well, that- yeah, I remember. Gerald York writing to him that you see you write your work as if everyone has Skeet's etymological dictionary by them and they're prepared to look up every classical reference and so the, the modern read the modern reader simply uh, if they don't immediately recognize the meaning if it doesn't come off the page like a journalistic article they lose interest uh, and Crowley was sort of astonished by this he was astonished to find that John Simons for example his first biographer uh, was not familiar with the works of Browning. He just couldn't understand it. Um, now, nowadays, this man, Crowley, would be described as an intellectual snob and, and a cultural elitist. Well, he was an intellectual snob, and he was certainly a cultural elitist. He wanted you to join the elite. Uh, but in order to do so, you need to refine your mind. Uh, he was tumbling into a 20th century where mass circulation newspapers were about to rot the minds of millions, uh, the lowest kinds of characters became dominant in politics, and and so on. So he was he's really he's such a he's such an outsider to uh, the world we've grown up in, and I think that's part of the attraction now, is a romantic attraction for a man who somehow penetrated into our wasteland, and seems to know better. Uh, than our betters, <laughs> and uh, you know whether whether this could manifest as a political movement is hard to say because you know we we have all these um, these political zealots today who are righteousness obsessed who want to smash images like the the zealots in the English Reformation who went round the churches smashing every image of a saint smashing every image that they thought was politically incorrect or religiously incorrect. And we have this same mentality today. They want to cancel or burn or destroy or toss away or uh, impose uh, their, their, their idea of right and wrong on everybody else. And this, this is, I do wish Crowley were physically alive today because he would be able to, he would cut right through this nonsense so I think there's a kind of nostalgia for a man who was big enough to take on the loudmouth, half-educated, quarter-educated herdsmen who are constantly given voice by our disgusting and uh, hyper-vocal, interpenetrating, hard-to-miss-out media who are presenting a universe that doesn't exist. And it's the suspicion that this universe doesn't exist, which fuels the relative minority such as yourselves to take an interest in a, a social freak like Alistair Crowley. <laughs> so, I mean, on that subject, I was, I was actually interested in, in your take on, obviously, currently in our current kind of social climate, we have the, we have this sort of... Um, Yes, we do need climate change. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, you, we, we have we have groups of people um, now pushing harder to the left and harder to the right than ever before. Um, in, you know, that, why is that? Why uh, do you think that is? Well, I, I'm I'm not 100 percent sure why. I I I'm, I think this might be because of a lack of education and a lack of um, 
uh, and and people having a voice in a way they didn't have before via social media but do you feel that um do you feel that Crody might become might fall victim to this sort of uh, this kind He's of already I'm I'm told that there are some people who think that uh, you can be a thelemite yes. uh, while, while cancelling Crowley. Yeah, it's insane. Uh, the what well, it's called post philema apparently this this yeah, uh... they, they can stuff their post. Yeah. Uh, they, 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 they're going to be last past the post. Yeah. Uh, well, there's no thelema without Crowley. It's his it's his uh, thelema is the projection of Crowley's nature there's nothing more or less than that it, which may have a universal element i.e we may all have a bit of the a bit of this in us um but when people start telling you how you should view the prophet mm. who themselves are not prophets mm -hmm. who themselves couldn't imagine anything other than it appears to me what they've read and what their their prejudicial background has, has led them to uh, when they criticize a great man who themselves are not great, it's just like throwing beans at a colossus. I find it, uh, uh, it Crowley actually gets bigger the more they do that. Rather like Noah's Ark, they were all saying, what are you doing building a boat? There's no rain. <laughs> uh, you know, what a dumb, you know, and all that. And uh, eventually those people are in the water. So, oh, can you let us on board? <laughs> yes, yeah. I think... I, I think we, we, you know, there's every kind of um, every kind of folly is being let loose. It is a Pandora's box. Oh, I, uh, I absolutely agree. Yeah, I mean, if you if you wander down to Parliament Square and look at the statues of the the great men and women there, they're not great men and women because they're plaster saints. They're not, you know, they they they're great women and many due to the fact they're not, you know, they they're literally not that, you know. Greatness is transcending, uh, transcending what you have been, what you were born with, by the full exercise and courageous exercise of your gifts. That's what makes people great. Yeah. And being human uh, in the fullest. To have people, to have conformist little minds who've picked up a few nostra in a college under a, under a half-educated lecturer. Uh, lecturing about whether this person or that person is not great or not great or imposing their views on distant past and so forth is to me just is a risible uh, feature of a, of, a, of a culture that has has almost lost uh, all compass encouraged by as i say the echoey media who gives cannot help but give voice to the most stupid persons uh, that you can find yeah, absolutely. And and Crowley was, you know, uh, human in the fullest sense of the word. And you were saying earlier about um, had a sacramental attitude towards life. I mean, he's one of the few, I'd use the words with hesitation, religious writers who, who write seriously about, for example, laughter and its spiritual significance and it being a sacrament. He's closer. He's cl he's, uh, Crowley is probably today, spiritually speaking, probably closer to the Pope uh than he is to any of our leading uh intellectuals if i actually i said leading intellectuals i'm really having trouble trying to think of one <laughs> who's leading who's leading anything <laughs> leading one you know yeah uh, uh, no i we're, we're in a, we're in at the moment we're in an anarchy uh but it is it's it's a false anarchy because there are plenty of people who do think read and have you know, and are seeking and finding and all the rest of it, but uh, we have a we have unfortunately we we have a new um, 
I mean, the Catholic Church of the Middle Ages ruled through stained glass windows and fairy stories and the elevation of ideas which were then imposed. The contemporary media plays that role. I went into television in the, in the 80s in the, in the sense that I said, I'm not going to let the devil have all the programs. Maybe I can get something out occasionally that is, is, is going against that and give people a window into, into the world beyond this, this super Catholic media we have, uh, who now control, as Jim Morrison said, you know you're ruled by TV. Uh, yes, but he, hadn't, he didn't live to see the iPhone. <laughs> he didn't live to see social media, which are even more um, uh, uh, ridden with, with folly than, than the conventional journalistic media, which is hard to swallow enough. But we now, we now have, every, everybody thinks every tin pot half-baked brain is a prophet. So that, of course they will make comments about someone like Crowley. Crowley's going to eventually, I mean, I'm sure that the Jacques, you know, Crowley will be, they'll try to attack him. But they did in his lifetime. They didn't yeah. destroy him and they won't. Uh, yeah. because, you know, lies always defeat themselves. Yeah, yeah. And you soon, and you soon can distinguish the, you know, the goats from the sheep, and the the the, the level of, and the quality of the debate, you know, determines that, and and an informed, thoughtful point of view. And, yeah, uh, I mean, it's tragic that we're talking on a little podcast, you know, to a uh, to to a relatively minor audience, and uh, imagine if this debate was was had on. You know, international media. Uh, what a what a different world we would have been living in to even think yeah, about yeah. that. Yeah, and that, and I, I know I've, I've, you've said this yourself, Mr. Chetan, that you know the media's attitude towards Crowley is sort of at, you know at best mockery. A point will come. I, I do believe a point will come where uh, you know a more insightful, more engaging, more interesting, <laughs> a more a more um, significant, more you know approach will will arise somewhere. I mean, I've seen changes, like I said, I've seen changes in my lifetime, shifts in attitude in my lifetime. He's right. Worked, which Do you I, think these shifts are reflected in the media or or is there just now a gulf between the media mogul and their and their chosen journalists and the and sort of the rest of us? Yeah, it's true. I think maybe um, the internet certainly seems to have, um, you know, been a little bit more um, kinder to Crowley, doesn't it, than... Uh, the mainstream media it seems yes yes and uh how long will it be uh, that that freedom continues yes well that's the worry isn't it i mean this is what i was sort of alluding to earlier that we seem to have this new i mean we had it in the in, in the 80s you could say with the, with the tories and the and the kind of conservatism and now it seems to be we have a, a new form of censorship um starting to roll in with this cancel cancelling everything and it's kind of worrying. I mean, I, I do worry that Crody may fall slightly victim to that, but uh, I, hopefully not. He won't be. I, I, my my view is that people, those people, are merely firing arrows at themselves. Uh, you know, I presume somewhere in them they must have some capacity for reflection. But it's uh, so long as they're caught up in the noise of the media, they never stay still enough or quiet enough to actually. You remember Crowley's. Um, concise compendium of initiatic instruction. Uh, sit down, shut up, stop thinking, get out. Mm -hmm. 
I think if people take, I mean, there was a bit of that in John Lennon's bed in, you know, he said, what if the leaders of the world stayed in bed for a week? They might get an idea of what peace was actually like. Mm. You know, he said the tension would be released. Um, but I suppose you could argue today they're not only the leaders of the world, not only in bed, but they're probably fast asleep as well. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think we should we should probably discuss your new book. It comes out, I believe, in February. You don't have to. Oh, no. Oh, no. We, oh. It's, uh, no, we definitely want to do that. <laughs> so far, I mean, it's, it doesn't make for a good podcast, but I've, I've agreed every single word you're saying. So, But it does make a good podcast. So <laughs> let's go. Yeah, let's <laughs> Oh, you think I failed, I failed to, to give you what you wanted? I'm sorry. No, 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 no
Out of that came the Berlin book, Alistair Crowley in Berlin, because there was nothing in detail about Crowley's Berlin experience, which is incredible in itself. Do you know he was the only English artist uh, between World War One and and the Hitler period who was given a solo show in in Berlin when Berlin was the cultural epicenter of the whole world in the late Weimar period. Crowley was the only Englishman they gave a show to. That itself was fascinating and to describe it. And after that later, I thought, well, God, you know, the material kept coming in and I did the America book, which was a revelation to me as much to everyone else. And then it was obvious that India hadn't been covered. So I did the India and um, I may have missed one. <laughs> <laughs> And then uh, it, it was obvious that the that the whole period of, from when he um, got out of Germany in 1932, and I mean got out because he was in danger of his life, that period from to his death hadn't been covered in anything like the the detail that I know people who are genuinely interested in Crowley require, and, and that includes me. Uh, but actually, I, and I thought that would be the end of it. Actually, the England one, but there is one. There is one more. Ooh, oh, well, from beyond the grave. I mean, it, <laughs> I mean, he dies at the end. I mean, it's a bit of spoiler alert there. <laughs> yeah, you know, because then you'll have a sort of six-volume biography of of Crowley, which is mm -hmm. about, I think, is is about right. Mm -hmm. Oh wow! And um, and that's how it should always have been. I mean, he's too big. And the material that's available now, and well, was actually available originally, was always too vast to cram into, 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 into this. I mean, if you actually read the original book that sold so well, The Great Beast by John Simons, if you look at the apportioning of material, the last 30 years of his life really gets very, very, very little notice. Mm. And there's some um, truly interesting stuff in there. I mean... Uh... Well, it's, it's more than true. Yeah, it's 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 as interesting as any other. I always think the Chefalu period and the whole business of, uh, you know, the two years with huge gaps between 1920, 20, um, you know, he was, he was only in Chefalu from what? Summer 20. Uh, he was in Paris most of the winter of that year, bit of, quite a lot of 21. Uh, about half of 22 and and a little bit in 23 so it was it was a fragment of his life and he was actually in retirement at that point because he he'd so exhausted himself in america uh, between 1914-1919 that he he actually went to Chefalu to retire he, well, he, he, all the too much stuff about this abbey of Philema. it was just his humor you know he'd have called if he was living in a flat in brixton at the time he'd have probably called it the abbey of Philema. he certainly set up an abbey of Thelema or tried to when he was uh, uh, living down down in, um, oh, God, what's the bloody place? Um, uh, uh, oh, God, it's where Faulty Towers is at. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I've got to say, lapsed well, memory. Torquay. Torquay, yeah. yes, Torquay, darkest Torquay. I need yeah. to think of Crowley and Torquay in the war years, and of course he was there because of the bombing in, in London that finally shattered his nerves, and he very, very, very nearly died and was reported to have died. And there were, there were reporters around his, his lodgings in Torquay expecting to announce to the world the death of the great beast, but he, by a miracle he survived, and it was a miracle, um, because his asthma was was exacerbated not by the bombing itself. Funnily enough, when the bombing would happen, it would ease up. It was the not knowing when the next bombing was. Mm. 
and and of course he was living in Richmond for a lot of that time, and they were bombing all right round the, uh, the waters around there, and the whole house was shaking. You never knew when it was going to come. And uh, he he was I mean he was in his sixties, so he was he was um, you would say today vulnerable. He was vulnerable, and uh, we the wartime story of Crowley is is fabulous, and that, that's very much brought out in the book on a day to day basis. I mean he kept records of every single air raid. Every single one from the exact time, from the air raid warning and all this, you you have this incredible detail. Uh, a, a man who was, you know, and, and has a lovely story that Donald Camel's um, uh, father told uh, about when he, they see a German um, bomber uh, shot down and he ran out into the street in Richmond, dancing like a child for joy at it such a you know that's that's Crowley was such a you know he was he never stopped being the schoolboy yeah and and an instinctive response you know there's no you know there's something deeply there's instinctive and immediate about that response. oh he, yeah he would sing rural Britannia with the best of them because he always in in his heart of hearts he was he was a, a, a spirit so he had the spirit of the Englishman the yeah. true Englishman who who defies you know yeah. defies expectation I mean much as he was very very keen on the Celtic identity and the, his old family Crowley, of course, was originally Irish, but his branch of the family had been in England for since the 1700s. Uh, he was hypercritical of the British government, uh, but he, he, cert he certainly was, uh, he never stopped being, uh, part of him was always uh, a proud Englishman. And uh, there's no doubt of that. And I would like people today to, to not... Uh, not be ashamed of being part of one of the greatest stories of this 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 thing called human beings on this planet. England has its part to play. Uh, to me, it is not a catalogue of endless shame. It is a catalogue of human beings very often triumphing over goodness knows what obstacles. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm not I'm not one of this righteousness brigade that if people don't wave the flag of Greenpeace and you know think we're all equal whatever the hell that means um, I mean there's some people I've met who are quite superior to me in other ways how can we possibly be equal and uh, women especially I think are in superior that I've met some are you know there's no equality of course there have you have a, what if you mean equal before the law well of course you know my theft my if I thieve a car it's probably no different to anybody else thieving one but that's not equality. That's that's not equality. That's the law. Now, if you, if you invoke the law, you destroy everything that's interesting. Yeah. Uh, human beings. Yeah. I mean, the cattle in the field are, are all the same, all equal. That's a that represents a certain type of uh, stultifying sort of. Uh, dead well, Crowley's anti-egalitarian. Let's let's be clear about that, and that's very important. And uh, this idea that egalitarianism is the enlightened principle is just a. It's just a fiction of the so-called Enlightenment. Mm. Well, one yeah. one thing I found particularly interesting about this sort of the, this period of Crowley's life, um, and you you know you represent it very well in the book, is his kind of struggle to um, to maintain the Pasadena Lodge in in, in California. He seems to have a very um... well. You say he struggled to maintain it. He actually he he, he was as much of a problem. 
to its maintenance as, as he was an encouragement. Mm, true, true. I, I think he had a bit of a fantasy about what was going on in in in, in California, and he des desperately wanted to be part of it. And I think he was just terribly frustrated. But that's a very strong theme in the book: is this American side of the story, which was almost non-existent in all the early Crowley stories. Uh, certainly, the Great Beast, John Simons, which is still current. That his, you know, paid no attention to Crowley's uh, huge American experience and contacts. It's a, uh, it's a fascinating period. I mean, you've got some really interesting sort of side characters there as well, haven't you? In 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 the, in America, and I was wondering if you could maybe talk about some of the um, more influential characters, should we say? Um, from there's that. obviously Jack Parsons. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, uh, Jack Parsons came into the the Californian Thelema Church. Uh, established by Wilfred Smith um, quite late, but his arrival transformed it as if as if Douglas Fairbanks arrived. I mean, he was known as Handsome Jack, and he was a, a striking young man, and, and he was he'd already got a, a freewheeling morality and wanted to go to bed with practically every girl uh, that took his fancy and and, and did. Um, he was a rocket specialist. There's, I believe, there's a crater on the moon named after him on the dark side. Yeah, exactly. Um, he was a kind of well ahead of his time. He, he he got his own sort of Wiccan concept of woman um, before even Gerald Gardner had even met Crowley and uh, cobbled together his his, uh, his Wiccan um, revolution, if you may call it that, because it has been hugely influential. Uh, but he yeah he had this uh, idea of a completely liberated woman. And he's writing in, you know, late 30s, early 40s. Fascinating character, but he went over the top, of course, as many people do with Crowley, whether it was the drugs, the sex or what, I don't know. Crowley was terribly worried about what was going on in in Los Angeles. He said, the last thing I want Thelema associated with is that is that sort of disgusting, dribbly thing, the love cult, you know. Um, but there were wonderful characters turned up at, at uh, the the two main addresses of the Thelema Church in California. I, 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 uh, the, some of the women were very very striking. You know, Jane Wolfe, of course, was out there. She'd been with Paris and she'd been with Crowley and Chesterley and later in, in Paris, and she was a, a movie actress. You can see her on YouTube in various silent films. Um, and her career was ruined by her association with Crowley. She couldn't couldn't get any work in the uh, late 30s and 40s because uh, she was a devotee of the Thelema Lodge or church. They called it both. And um, but she also is a great personality and, and many of her friends, they're remarkable. Martin Starr's written a book called The Unknown God about the Californian Thelemites. My own view of that book is that it that it that it it, it it has a great deal of cynical disapprobation about it, uh, much of which is deserved, I think, on balance. But I, I think also, uh, if like me you love extraordinary personalities, uh, I think it un rather undersells the what was going on there. Yeah. Um, but I think Wilfred Smith was a, a heck of a character. He's a very prosaic, ordinary fellow working for the Californian Gas Company, and yet he's trying to lead a spiritual revolution based on the telegrams and letters he gets from Uncle Alistair, as it were, who was in, existing in various states of penury in a bombed-out London. <laughs> I mean, 
it's an incredible story that this development was going on while England was in peril of its uh, future altogether. No question. And then the wonderful arrival of Grady McMurtry, Grady Louis McMurtry, who comes over. He'd, he'd been at the, uh, he'd been to some of the meetings at um, at the Thelema Church, was very impressed by the Gnostic Mass, and uh, he comes over with the American Army just before the Battle of the Bulge. Ninety, uh, there was on TV the other night. Very good, very good sort of movie recreation of it. And he went out with the American army and Crowley wanted him to lead the whole thing after his death. He said, you're, you know, you're the one. You've got to be blooded to lead Thelema. You know, we, mm. we, we want men who've actually faced the real conditions. I mean, uh, he, he was quite amazing, McMurtry. Yeah. A remarkable character, poet. And then later, incredibly, after fighting the Korean War, distinguished himself in, in active service in, in the... In after D-Day, in, in 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 fighting fighting the SS and the Germans and all the rest of it, up to the, up to the collapse of Berlin in in 1945, and he's then in, in the Korean War, and then, boom, 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 fast forward to the 70s, and he becomes uh, frankly a hippie because he wants to meet and relate to young people, and uh, some experiences with LSD, and he starts to grow his beard, and he looks like a Sufi mystic. Much missed, uh, Grady McMurtry, remarkable uh, wit and um, incredible intelligence. And you can hear things on the internet of him talking about Crowley and, and, his, and he talks incredibly fast like that. So it's really worth <laughs> Keep up with the guy. Incredible mind. Wonderful. And he, he's responsible really for revitalizing the OTO, um, without which a lot of the books you refer, uh, you imply uh, have been produced, you know, in the last uh, 20, 30 years, wouldn't have come about. Because Crowley, when certainly when I met, uh, first encountered Crowley, was just, he was, the only things you could get were a couple, couple of books from Routledge, and the rest was pirated versions with very poor quality indeed. And that certainly changed. Yes. I think, I think personally Crowley's going to tower as he, as he believed he would, I think in due course. You know, unless we are wiped out of existence by some horror or other, um, uh, I think I think Crowley will triumph over this era, and and all the and all the, uh, the naysayers and the uh, the anti-spiritualists and the scientismists who believe, you know, if you can't put it under a microscope, it doesn't exist, and all of that, they will be the footnotes and the end notes of history, and. Uh, if there is any chance at all, and I'm not at all optimistic, but if there's any chance at all of a spiritual revival of humanity in in our fullness, uh, Crowley will be one of the one of the patron saints, uh, regardless of his personal predilections and mm. follies and, and and countless failures of which he was the first to admit. Regardless, or because I think as well, and and sort of stepping back to. And my understanding is that, you know, as a as a, a magical operation, as an act of magic, he wanted to revive the vehicles and systems that Crowley, um, you know, was striving for in his lifetime. And uh, yes, like you say, it's, 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 that's an part, important part of the legacy. He is. And I think you'll find these people who go on about cancelling Crowley just don't know any of this stuff. They've, they've read a bit. They've realised that he's a Tory, high Tory. And probably don't understand the difference in a high Tory and um, uh, any of the current front bench of pseudo Tories. 
Um, but uh, yeah, uh, Crowley's a high Tory, and he's not a he's not a socialist. That's the that's the fact. But that doesn't mean that he's not uh, dedicated to the liberation of all living people. Absolutely, every man and woman is a star. Every man and every woman is a star. Yeah, I mean, um, we should uh, let's cover a couple of other you know, before we let you go. Let's let's cover a couple of other um, important uh, <laughs> important um, uh, periods that you cover in the book. I think one of the most important ones, especially for Crowley himself, would have been his work with Lady Frieda Harris. Oh yes, um, Lady Harris is the proper way. It's Frieda Lady Harris. Oh, Frieda Lady Harris. Yeah, that's right. Sorry. Um, could you talk to his relationship with with Harris and also the work they did together and you know the uh, the wonderful um, art work that came about because of this relationship? Frida, yeah. Well, I mean, I go into that in the book, and I don't want to spoil the fun of the book by uh, spilling all the beans of how they actually met and what their uh, existing connections were. I'll just say this: I think that um, one of the greatest meetings of Crowley's life turned out to be, and it started on a very low key at an invitation to a dinner, uh, a mutual friend, Clifford Bax, if I uh, remember right. Uh, Crowley, Crowley, this was when Crowley was living in sort of Elephant and Castle and could hardly find a clean shirt to wear. And um, they met, and he, he must have looked pretty wrecked at the time, I would have thought. But she was a woman of great insight and uh, spiritual vision. She was into Rudolf Steiner and anthroposophy, and something between them clicked. And Crowley had to ask himself, is this a woman I'm going to go to bed with, or is, it, or, is this something, or is this something else going on here? He wisely came to the conclusion this was something else was going on here. And they, had, they started to meet, and I think his initial thing was, ah, oh, here's a soft touch for some money. She could you know, pay my bills, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, she gave him, no, uh, gave him short shrift on that one. She was married to the uh, chief uh, whip of the Liberal Party, uh, Sir Percy Harris, uh, who was a member of the Queen's Privy Council and had access to all kinds of government papers and this sort of thing, was, 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 a, was a, a serious, although dull, I, you know, they said, said no one could empty the House of Commons quicker than Sir Percy Harris. But he, he was a kindly man and he believed in his wife's, who was much younger than him, he believes in his wife Frieda's artistry. And she hadn't had any serious recognition as an artist and through their conversations about art and its relationship to the spirit and they are wonderful the letters between them because Frida was no pushover she was extremely uh, she would say to Crowley I, I, I don't know what you're talking about you're talking absolute nonsense this is not the way I see it I see it like this and Crowley realized he'd, he'd got himself mixed up with the mind with a, a, an excellent intuitive mind and a truly creative artist. And he chose her uh, to be the artist executant of his plan to do a completely new set of the 78 cards of the tarot. And that relationship goes on for, i.e. the working relationship goes on uh, from, from, from the late, from about 1938 to 1943. And she would pay him a stipend, as she called it, out of her own money. Uh, and she went without so she could give him money so just so he could get by. And, you know, Crowley was terribly generous when he had money in his pocket. He was down to the Café Royale and would buy drinks for everybody. So it was a hell of a burden. And she had to constantly tell him, look, you know, I, I want to see you um, alive. <laughs> I want to see you being able to pay your rent and put sixpence in the gas thing and make the odd phone call. But I'm not, I'm not here to fund your lifestyle. 
and uh, he he was a, he would he respected that they they had a big falling out because of Crowley's reputation when she finally finished these marvelous paintings which I've seen uh, at the Warburg Institute I mean they're they're about over two feet tall they're they're very big they're not the size of a of a tarot of a normal card they're actually paintings framed uh, which were then much later and not in Crowley's lifetime uh, the whole set was eventually photographed and it took decades for this incredible achievement to come out but she originally had them exhibited in three three places oxford i remember the gallery when they found out crowley was connected uh, cancelled the exhibition she found that in london she could only exhibit them by keeping crowley out of it altogether which was he'd written the original um catalog uh, essay and she got robert cecil who was a friend of crowley in fact he was a pupil of crowley he was working uh with the head of mi6 at the time um, she she got him to write the the new forward for the main exhibition at the Barclay Galleries in London in 1943, and she didn't even mention Crowley in it. She said, "I'm very grateful to a gentleman who spent his life studying the the, the mystical Kabbalah and its relationship to the to the tarot." So Crowley was profoundly hurt that what he'd spent years with the meetings dis um, discussing every single aspect of every single card what to include in it because she did many tests which i've also i've seen also her uh, drawings and sketches that um, you don't normally see and, and there, there was, it was a huge evolution to produce this fabulous pack and he produced the book of thoth out of this which was published in 1944 as a magazine <laughs> this was due to the government saying you can't uh, produce books because of the paper restrictions under the wartime conditions a bit like today the government steps in with yet another set of restrictions um, so it was published as a magazine but actually it's a beautifully banned book the book of thoth very few people have have seen the original there's a there's a there's a an american paperback version which is a a, a reproduction but not a very good one the pictures are in black and white the original plates are absolutely gorgeous um, and there's only a selection of, 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 of the um, of some of the dominant cards and it, it uh, yeah that was that was just one of his projects that kept him going but their relationship i think was was profound she was devoted to him after he died she visited him on his deathbed and uh, she ne she never even though they had this falling out over the exhibition they became firm friends again crowley was always very forgiving you know this is another aspect he could be very vicious if people didn't come back you know, people did him a disservice and disappeared. They were out. You know, uh, but but he he for for when he recognised the, the true circumstances of a person and, and their genuine willingness to get behind the the deeper thing, he he, he realised that there wasn't any chance that Alistair Crowley was going to be publicly recognised as a uh, as an artistic contributor in London in 1943. It was just wasn't going to happen. No. His, one, his reputation was was utterly destroyed by that. Uh, one, uh, I, I was uh, browsing the internet recently. Um, my partner and I, uh, Christina, um, members of the National Trust, um, and we were looking for places to visit. And I sort of stumbled upon this place called Tradiga House. Oh yes, um, yes. And, a, yeah, and a big spread and National Trust website all about Crowley. And I thought, oh my God, I've, they're two things I, d I never consider being uh, <laughs> kind of connected. And um, 
there's this character called uh, Evan Evan Morgan. Yeah, so he was known according to the National Trust website at least is known as the Black Monk. And uh, Crody, <laughs> Crody apparently described him as the adept of adepts. I'm looking at the website right now. Um, I was wondering if you could talk a bit about Evan Morgan because he's quite an, he's an interesting character as well. And Crody did seem to uh, have some respect for him. Well, he, he had a um, yes, uh, uh, Evan Morgan, Lord Tredegar, um had a magic room at uh, at his place at Tredegar House, uh, which Crowley, when he visited, he spent he spent a long weekend there. Um, I think uh, Evan wanted him to perform some magic, and I don't think Evan Morgan was terribly worried whether it was black, white, or grey, or, or anything. Just could he do some? Crowley was very nervous that he was going to be um, inculcated in some sort of magical experiment of Tredegar, who he'd met at the, at the um, Café Royale and other places in London. And he was a bit nervous about it, um, what he might be asked to do. Because Crowley didn't like this sort of idea of being set up for, you know, to to demonstrate what he could do. I mean, uh, Morgan's an interesting guy. I mean, he worked. He he was working for um, MI8 in Signals Intelligence in 1942 under MI6, but he he'd blown it by being too loose with his speech with a couple of local girls, which had been reported, and uh, he lost that that job. Crowley was always at this period in the 40s on. Uh, partly on the fringes, partly on the inside of, of certain figures in MI5 and MI6, uh, some of which he didn't realise, he, he didn't even know how, how actual senior they were. Um, uh, so, I mean, Crowley was always uh, somewhat naive about people in in this sense. Uh, he was a, sort of a bit of a, uh, I suppose you, you can call him an, an intelligence asset at the time. Um, yeah, well, that, that gives you an idea. Um, Vika, second Vike, Count Tredegar, he, he introduced Crowley to some, some remarkable ladies, including the wife of the Chinese ambassador, Madame Wellington Koo, and she uh, uh, visited Crowley at, at Hastings after the war. Um, but she'd been told things like Crowley could make it rain on a particular part of a road if he wanted to, that sort of magic, you know, um, the kind of uh, Harry Potter type of idea of magic as as being extraordinary interventions or miraculous moments in the natural order. Whereas Crowley never conceived of magic as interventions in a natural order because he saw no, no lack, there was a continuum in nature and occult knowledge was simply understanding how that might work and its relationship to the mind. But they came looking for miracles and he, when he couldn't provide them, they were very disappointed. And they noticed that he was old and he was living in uh, relative, relative, simple circumstances. So Madame Wellington Koo felt she'd been over, um, rather been slightly misled by Lord Tredegar. But but it was Lord Tredegar recognised that Crowley's glory was within him, not in his circumstances. And I think it took some courage, as we're talking about Frieda Harris, um, to see the real Crowley behind the the, the battered old man of the 40s uh, and, and late 30s. That took, that took some courage. We don't have that problem now because we're not presented with the, the ravages of a life perhaps too well lived. Uh, we can see Crowley in the round. That's, the, that's why I've done the biography to show the, the, the fullness of this man and the way he touched so many people, remarkable people, and continues to do so. Would you say, it was, would you say it's fair to say Crowley felt 
that he was a prisoner of of England towards the end of his life. You know, in this in this. Yes, I think I think I, no, Crowley, of course, was no prisoner of anybody, and I think if he'd ever felt that that bad, he'd have swum the channel. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, you, you, Crowley was not a person who acquiesced, but he was he his great effort was to try and get a visa to go back to America. Now he'd lived in he knew America incredibly well. He'd lived there nonstop from. Uh, November 1914, right through to November 1919, uh, he had followers there. He had he had uh, all kinds of opportunities that would have arisen had he been able to get back, but he couldn't try as he might with the highest help available. Um, the way he would put it to his friend in America, Carl Germer, his, his eventual successor, he says, "Britain, Britain's war effort needs me so much that they won't let me out." Now, how much of the inability to get a visa was due to his reputation? How much might have been due to the pressure of um, uh, J. Edgar Hoover uh, in, on the American side uh, regarding him as undesirable? We, we don't really know. Though it came very close. And I think by the time it became a real possibility, which is 1946, he, 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 was, he was too ill to make the journey. And they all want, desperately wanted to see him over in Los Angeles. And he just, he said, like, he said, basically had this, he had to have regular heroin to stave off these crippling uh, bronchial asthmatic attacks, uh, which eventually did kill him, um, which had started, you know, in, in the, started getting truly bad in the 20s um, through the anxieties of his life mainly. Uh, he's, he's, he was constantly living like a gypsy, and he suffered enormous anxiety. It started the real damage. Started. I mean, he always called it Kangcheng Jung, uh, Kangcheng phobia, meaning the the in, the interruption in his nervous system. He associated with the 1905 attempt on Kangcheng Junga uh, on the Nepal Sikkim border. Um, but while that, that probably initiated the first asthma symptoms, uh, it got really bad, started to get really bad in uh, in, uh, in America because of the, he had literally no money. He was living in the most difficult circumstances um, and, you know, was very lucky to survive it. I mean, the, 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 read Crowley in America, you'll see what, what, a, what a hell he went through trying to live in New Orleans and then in garrets and sleeping on people's floors and benches in various parts of lower Manhattan. And he really went through it. And that anxiety over his ability to live didn't ease uh, really until he met uh, Lady Harris, who gave him a few years where he had a, the, a, what we've now called supplementary benefit, you know, just enough mm. to keep starvation at bay. And of course, at this period, he kind of he ended up in Neverwood in Hastings. Um, and... I didn't like that phrase. It ended up. Uh, <laughs> he chose. He chose. He didn't end up there. He chose it. It was. It was brought to him as an idea by his dear friend Louis Wilkinson's son. Hmm. Uh, Louis Wilkinson, he'd known since uh, first in 1912, and got to know him in America because Louis Wilkinson was lecturing on English literature on on the east coast of America uh, during the First World War. And they they remet up. I mean, Wilkinson had been a, a correspondent of Oscar Wilde, and and was very fond of of Wilde, and like Crowley's lover Ada Le Leveson, 
uh, supported Wilde when the whole world turned against him. Crowley was very sympathetic to Wilde on, on, on one level, but al al always rather felt he'd, he'd rather asked for it. Um, but he no, nevertheless, of course, was Crowley was, of course, as equally at great risk from the kind of forces which Oscar Wilde had been through because Crowley was bisexual and it would only have taken, you know, well, it, we know that his reputation starts to go down in 1910 when he is accused by implication in the looking glass of having sexual relations with, with men in the Golden Dawn period. And that's really when his, he becomes vulnerable to the kind of blackmailing techniques of the British yellow press, which I'm sure all that still goes on. You know, the persecution of a vulnerable individual by the press when it suits them. Mm, absolutely. And also, you know, the, 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 um, the John Ball newspaper articles, I mean, the, the man we would love to hang is being yeah, the time. John Paul. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, in the on the same page, in the same page, they they castigate D. H. Lawrence as a perverted monster for similar reasons. Yes, and isn't it sad that you know Lawrence, of course, had no time for Crowley. Interestingly enough, uh, he thought he was old hat. Uh, well, sod you, D. H. Lawrence, is what I'd say. You know, without his old hat, you wouldn't have any new trousers. That's my view. But um, no, I, I yeah, absolutely. You know. In the memory of the British establishment of literature, you can be execrated for any sin if you're Percy Bysshe Shelley or D.H. Lawrence, you will be rehabilitated. But Crowley must, the, the mud must stick. Why is this? And this is one of the great questions. Why is Crowley, uh, while he may have a following, that following I suspect will probably stay fairly niche. They may be an inf we may be an influential niche, who knows? Um, and in spiritual terms, it really doesn't matter. Um, but I, I, can't, I can't imagine a time in the future when 20th century English literature has a Crowley component. But I may be wrong. But, you know, I found with the subject that I've made my own, as it were, Western esotericism, we, we managed to get a course going in Exeter, which a lot of people in the university were against. I say a lot of people, some figures were against it. And uh, I would love to get a Western esotericism course in, in Oxford, but I, I think it's pie in the sky and very unlikely in my lifetime because, of the, again, um, the whole field of magic is seen as a, basically a pointless and misleading and superstitious nonsense. You know, even though the English are uh, still very much, not only the English, goodness me, People around the world want to know about it. Yeah, and uh, it's 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 one of the sad things, really, is when a, a culture closes its mind. Mm. I mean, uh, uh, yeah, like I was saying earlier, I mean, I, I I remain sort of optimistic because I've been um, in in the sense that I've been surprised. I've seen the shifts in my own lifetime. I've I've seen I, I've seen I've seen things where I'd never thought would be possible. In the you know in those changes of cultural attitudes. Well, I've been part of that. And yeah, I mean, absolutely. That where I was teaching, able to teach MA students. So, yeah, yeah. I, I no, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not as pessimistic. And and um, it's 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 one of those difficult things. I can't possibly predict the future. Uh, I do feel that the the woke PC brigade will eventually shout themselves out. 
they will be, you know, left horse with indignation, but the world doesn't change. <laughs> and and that they will they may well pass on. My my feeling is is the brightest sparks of the world today, they may not be the noisiest or the most publicized, are very much sensitive to the best of of that. I was going to say the 60s, and I mean that quite specifically, uh, philosophical counterculture, but without the dogmatic, mm. you know, um, aspects which have uh, cheap have cheapened it. But mm. I think the 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 only hope for mankind is, as Salvador Dali said, is genius, individuality. It's the individual that's going to save us, and by that I would like that to be every individual mm. uh, coming out. Uh, refusing to stand in line and salute the, uh, the sergeant of the law, uh, by which I'm not advocating public anarchy, but an intellectual freedom, mm. and a, but which relies entirely on spiritual freedom. Man is a spiritual being, as Kathleen Rain never tired of reminding me, man is a spiritual being in a spiritual universe. This isn't something that contemporary science recognizes explicitly. Um, though the more I hear about uh, physics today, uh, I, it's very difficult to think of its material at all. Um, when we have to uh, engage with concepts of charm and strangeness, <laughs> these seem to me to be talismanic, magical conceptions. Um, obviously, you know, we've a long. We've, I just think we've got enormous way to go. Crowley was a pioneer. He wasn't finishing the job. I think he was starting it. As for people who cancel him, well, you, you could cancel Galileo, cancel Giordano Bruno, cancel Isaac Newton. They also were freaks in their time to some minds. Cancel Pico della Mirandola, you know. Yeah. Uh, you know who 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 else don't you like? Don't you know when you've got your Inquisition together, your public Inquisition with your little phones, with your your cowardly um, trolling of individuals, interference with other people's true will, you know, what are you going to do when the, the means of that are taken away? You're going to fi found your new inquisition? Are you going to turn political parties into inquisitors, into people's private business because you don't like it? You don't like what they write, think, say, etc., etc. Mm. kind of mollusk are we breeding in this body politic of ours? No, I think Crowley is very important in this stage stage of our development simply because of the free this 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 blessed and vital freedom which we must not only cherish but assert and build on yeah definitely well thank you very much for coming on the show tobias um could you let us know what you have coming up in the pipeline um obviously you have this book that is is yet to land in england but is currently out alistair crowley in england the return of the great beast but what else what else can we expect from you in the near future you say you're never satisfied. <laughs> <laughs> well, I carry on, you know. Um, yeah, well, there's uh, all sorts of things. My new, my next book uh, that I'm starting, the next book that will come out that you will be available uh, will, is, boy, I slightly loathe to say it because with the new one coming out, what's the, it was a, oh, well, I'll wait till the next one. <laughs> <laughs> there, I, there is one more Crowley biography to come out, which I have finished. And which we're, we're we'll be preparing over next year, amongst other things. 
I'm now, I'm now engaged on a book that will come out after that one, which I, I will start, well, today really, um, which is about the origin of alchemy, oh, the wow. real origins of alchemy. Um, a lot of things are said about alchemy. A lot of it is 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 is, is second, you know, um, hearsay or things people have read. I want to get down to the absolute sources, nitty gritty of the origins of this whole notion of a transformative chemistry and where it comes from and what was originally intended as far as we can possibly say you know the greatest collection of alchemical writings that were discovered in egypt uh, have never been translated in their entirety into english you may amaze people who think it all happens here it doesn't um it was only translated by the frenchman Berthelot. I remember trying to get Berthelot's uh, compendium of uh, Greek alchemy. Uh, they call Greek, and we're talking Greco-Egyptian. Uh, I remember trying to get it at Oxford, and you couldn't couldn't get a copy of the thing in French, never mind. And there is no English, so I, I've set myself to translate that, which is enormous work in itself. Uh, but I did that with the Occult Paris book I did, where I, I had to translate practically everything because the there was no English interest in it. Mm. And this, I found the stuff I was translating was of enormous vitality and cultural significance, use that phrase, uh, but nobody bothered translating it. So in order to get the picture of alchemy accurately, I, 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 will, I will be going to work on that material. So that's my, that's my immediately next project. Then there's, an, as I say, there's another book coming out, the, the, last, the last volume of the Crowley biography will come out in 2020, well, it'll be 23, won't it? Mm. 23, all being well. Other than that, I carry on with my music, and uh, I'm hoping to. I've written some drama scripts, and, and all. One always has these projects going. Very difficult. Hollywood is very difficult territory at the moment. The company I've been dealing with has got some like 19 delayed projects due to the COVID. Mm -hmm. uh, tell me about it. I work in that industry, so, uh, <laughs> so yeah, everything's delayed in that in that oh, world. It's, it's hopeless. I mean. This whole this whole thing we've been through is just just hysterical, really. Just hysterical. I mean, it's it's, it's I, there must be something about um, spreading of disease that, that that sets off kind of medieval levels of mentality of, of you know hyper hyper fear and uh, um, you know myth, mythological thinking inability to get to grips with the facts and all the rest of it and uh, you know I was one of the one of the nice things about being an old <laughs> an old Oxford person was they do send you information of research that's being done and one of the things I was really glad to get was we got we got regular updates on the development of the AstraZeneca last year and uh, the work that the people were doing and the you know tireless work to try and get this flipping vaccine made it was so inspiring mm. and they were really giving it all for the sake of human beings life and the civilization mm. and to hear people treated as if it's like a bowl of cornflakes that they could refuse it really is if you ever wanted any faith in mankind <laughs> My own view in this is we finally discovered exactly what proportion of the country are completely stupid. <laughs> yeah, we can actually measure it. 
by yeah. the people who have been so blind to uh, reason on this one. Mm. You know, reason is a gift of the spirit. And uh, all this spiritual interest is important, but the fruit of it should be uh, a true sense of reason. You can't subject spiritual values to rational analysis and exhaust them because spirit comes first, reason comes second in, in the initiated tradition. But, that, but when you've got uh, reason supported by a spiritual effort, if you can't see it, you're neither rational nor spiritual. Indeed, exactly. And what a, that's a great way to uh, to end this this episode. But thank you so much, uh, Toby, to, Tobias, rather, for uh, uh, joining us. Um, and I, I, I definitely want you to come back on, actually, um, in the near future, because we would love to talk to you about Gnosticism as well at some point. Um, which I believe is a subject you're well acquainted with. Oh yes, <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, yes. Yeah. Thank you. I mean, yeah. I don't. I'm I'm trying to find the best words to describe how I feel about um, having the privilege of actually uh, uh, interview you. So um, I, I I'll just leave it at that. I, like you, your words speak for themselves. Like, you know, <laughs> there we are. I can't do better than that, can I? Well, th th thank you for the opening, and uh, I, I hope good, good, only good can come of it. And we are back. That was quite an interview. I'm, uh, I'm really pleased that we've uh, finally had Mr. Churton on the show. Um, what did you think, Mr. Mr. Satir? Well, it's a fascinating. It's a fascinating subject. It, you know, it, the, the, the character of Crowley is uh, this fascinating sort of countercultural influence, which, you know, as I said, sort of crops up in all sorts of really unexpected ways, very really sort of um, uh, relative ways as well. And uh, it, the and and and, the, and uh, Mr. Churton himself is a, is a fascinating character and just the right person, you know, to. Uh, for the work, I mean, you know, it's it's it's, it's improvidential almost that uh, he's actually uh, being able to sort of apply himself to this particular work, and then, you know, some, and there's, I think, you know, some people might think, oh God, not another, yet another book on Crowley, and some wag might say, oh well, you know, you know, it's like you know, Tobias might write, you know, Crowley in his bath or something like that, and but I tell you what, uh, you know, a writer who's capable of bringing that sort of um, concentrated sort of focus um, and and re re and a new light a new light and a comprehensive understanding of the subject matter you know that that those books those books to the serious student would be of, of great value yeah exactly uh, and we were speaking earlier about it's the, the kind of great passion he brings to the subject yeah. as well when talking about it and that was i mean that was absolutely fantastic yeah. it was um yeah. you know yeah uh, and he has he has he has strong feelings and, and and views and and things and he's not squeamish about expressing them and that's that is in well that's refreshing in and of itself i think irrespective of how much you you may feel sympathetic to it or not also it's, it's in line it's in step with you know the sort of crowley ethos or meme Mm, no, definitely um now we have a third copy of um alistair crowley in england to give away to a listener and i'm actually going to make you go to the website to uh 
to find the question that it's going to be a competition there'll be a, a question on the post at sittingnow.co.uk um, i will run this competition from the beginning of january till the end of january so you have time to get yourself over i mean there's no excuse we all have phones with the internet on these days so don't give me the excuse that you can't get to a computer <laughs> so go to sittingnow.co.uk look for the post it's episode 60 uh, there's a whole section at the top of the site that allows you to select you know which episodes it's episode 60 come to the site look for the uh the, the competition question i will only publish it on the website so you have to come to the website um not that i'm trying to get traffic <laughs> or anything so obvious but it's just um yes i just want people to come and have a look at the website you know um so yes we will be giving away that that uh, spare copy um to the first person maybe not the first person. we'll we'll do a lucky dip so uh get your question in and we'll find some way of randomizing the um the selection process and the lucky winner will get a copy brand new hardback copy of tobias churton's new book alistair crowley in England, The Return of the Great Beast, and it's a fantastic book. It's um, a very worthwhile book, and um, and it's a, you know, like I say, an intriguing and a fascinating subject matter. I mean, uh, we, we, I mean, we touch on it in the um, in the interview, but, uh, you know, the tone was set in sort of 1951 with the first biography um, uh, written about, about Crowley, mm. which uh, you know sort of set the tone, unfortunately, in some respects. But 1951 was, a, you know, a light, you know, it was another planet, mm -hmm. and you can see how Crowley, as a pioneering figure, you know, ca caused anxieties, which at the time, which which, which people now, in, in some in some respects, anyways, wouldn't wouldn't share. No, true. Wouldn't necessarily share. Anyway, we will be back next week. We have the author Mark Stavish on the show um, and we're going to be talking to him about Egregores, his uh, book. He actually has a new book out as well, um, but we're actually going to talk to him first about Egregores and then have him back on to talk about his uh, more recent book, uh, which is about the Masons. But uh, anyway, until then, we will see you next week and sleep well. <laughs> <laughs>